0: Welcome, everyone. If you're hearing us right now, you're lucky enough to be listening to the very first episode of Adventures in Your Own Backyard, a new radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Michelle Dang. And my name is Harmon Kang. So what is
1: this new show, you may ask? Well, while Michelle and I were creating the show, we realized that our experiences of Edmonton are vastly different, and we always felt like there is some merit in showing different perspectives. By exploring our city, we want to show how you don't always have to travel out of your own backyard to find something new.
0: So in this show, we hope to enlighten our listeners and reveal a narrative of Edmonton contrary to nicknames like Deadmonton, may have you believe. So let's take 12 steps into our backyard and into the world.
1: So what do we have on the show today, Harmon? Well, my fellow backyardigans, today on the show, we're diving into the deep end. Our very first guest is a queer icon that both Michelle and I look up to. None other than the author, the academic, the artist, the triple A threat, Vivek Shreya. She has received honors from the CBC's Canada Reads and is an assistant professor at the Creative Writing Center from the University of Calgary. Her most recent book, I'm Afraid of Men, received
0: praise from Vanity Fair for being cultural rocket fuel. We sat down with her last month before her appearance at LitFest to chat about I'm Afraid of Men. Sadly, LitFest is already over, but she will be back in town on November 20th for Transave of Remembrance at the U of A. You can buy tickets online at Eventbrite, and there's also a Facebook event page you can check out. So without further ado, here is the interview. We wanted to start off just by discussing some language and terms with you. Homophobia, transphobia, both words are rooted in fear. So our first question is, how do you think referring to these things as phobias has affected the LGBT community?
2: I mean, what I like about the terms is that sort of insistence on fear, because, My experience of being different has been often one where people are ultimately afraid or uncomfortable as opposed to sort of like sitting with that fear or discomfort they've lashed out. But I think what the impact is on us as queer and trans people is like living in a world where we understand that we are feared And it's a very strange and displacing feeling, feeling like people fear you just because you don't look like them or act like them.
0: Another thing about your book that really stuck with me was how you talk about taking up space as a trait of masculinity and just how it's a form of misogyny because so often that space belongs to women and gender non-conforming people. So what types of physical and non-physical spaces are you referring to here?
2: I mean, we're familiar with the phrase uh, manspreading, which to me is like a really great example of the way that men are constantly taking up space publicly whether it's on public transport or on the airplane and often it's very space that doesn't belong to them and it's often like a racialized person or a woman or a gender nonconforming person. I mean, when I talk about taking up space, I'm talking about the exact same things. Like, you know, one of the stories I talk about in the book is how when I was learning to be a man, I met someone who became sort of like my masculinity coach and, you know, he coached me on how to walk on the sidewalk and how, you know, it was about having like really broad shoulders and like walking with your feet in either direction and yeah, so public space is anything from public transport to even just like the sidewalk
0: do you think these spaces can also be non-physical
2: Absolutely right like I think verbal space and what I think one of the things that I talk about in the book as well is like as a teacher I'm so conscious of the fact that male students tend to take up more space verbally in class and the impact that has on my teaching and I talk about how because of the ways that men take up space and because of the ways I notice how much space they take I end up learning their names first which is like this like unfortunate you know side result and I say you know how does this noticing of men contribute to their overall success and how does it sort of perpetuate itself? So I think you're absolutely right. And then also just like emotional space, right? Like any of the experiences I've had with men end up really taking a toll on me. You know, people think we're talking about these like graphic incidents, which, you know, have happened, but I'm also thinking about sometimes I'll have an interaction with a man at a grocery store and they'll just be rude for no reason. And then that will just weigh me down for the rest of the day. And I think so many women and gender nonconforming people have to navigate a lot of emotional space thinking about how to interact with a man we're always trying to think about how to interact and engage with a man in a way that won't make them uncomfortable or harm us
0: so at the end of this book you also ask what might your life be if you didn't impose these designations on yourself let alone on me so how do you think our lives would be like if our bodies weren't assigned a gender or is that (laughs) answer just unimaginable
2: i mean i'm trying to live that life now right i mean for me i think the trans body is the answer especially like a non-binary trans body me not shaving my chest hair for instance That, for me, is about really pushing against normative ideas of gender and femininity. Truthfully, a lot of those questions are coming from like a highly, highly, highly optimistic place, and I'm actually a deeply, deeply, deeply realistic person, so I don't actually know that I believe that we'll ever move away from gender. I think most humans actually including LGBTQ people, are very attached to the binary, very attached to gender. So like I, I have no preconceived ideas that the gender binary is going to be dismantled anytime soon. For me, sometimes asking those questions, though, is more about getting us to imagine new possibilities. And it's only in imagining new possibilities that possibilities can actually take shape, even if that's centuries from now.
0: Just another dominant theme in this book is intersectionality Mm -hmm. and the importance of it. So I think you rightfully critique the prevalence of racism, misogyny, and transphobia in the LGBTQ community. So I just wanted to ask you, why do you think that this has been so overlooked and even accepted, I guess? And how can we in the community become more intersectional?
2: I remember when I first came out as queer about a decade ago and I used to do, it's called a positive space program. I would like basically train staff and faculty on how to be an ally and positive person essentially and like what to do if you hear someone getting called fag in your classroom. How do you handle this situation? And I would remember doing these workshops and every so often there would be a queer participant or two queer participants and they wouldn't agree on something and it would make me very uncomfortable. I was like, oh no, 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 the straight people are watching. We have to show a united front. And I felt very attached to this idea of a united front because there's so much criticism of us already and people like to project this idea of infighting or like you guys can't even get along with each other I mean women face this all the time it's like women can't get along with each other but in those conversations it's never well women can't get along not because women innately don't like each other it's because we've internalized misogyny that has been put on us and because the power is so distant from us it's easier for us to target other people who are disenfranchised and who don't have power so I think in my own understanding of queerness... I've been less attached to a monolithic, united front, and more about tackling our own internalized shit, so to speak. And I think a big part of why I've changed my lens and my focus is because I have experienced so much discrimination within communities. And a part of it's also like pushing against the straight cis gays, right? For me, it feels more important to talk about biphobia in queer communities. It feels more important to talk about racism in queer communities. It feels more important to talk about transphobia in queer communities. Because I do think we have this idea within the community that because we've experienced oppression that we don't oppress each other, which we know is a lie. Again, it's always easy to be angry at the oppressor or be angry at straight people or cis people. But truthfully, a lot of the hurt and pain that has been caused in my life has been people in my own communities. And so I think it's just as important to have those conversations, if not more, to also talk about the ways that, you know, just because you're a marginalized person doesn't mean you didn't grow up being beaten down with the same sort of systems of oppression that taught you to hate people who are like you or slightly different than you. So yeah, I think part of why these conversations don't tend to happen a lot publicly sometimes is because there is this sort of like fear of showing a divided community. And I think also, we do sometimes think we're superior in our attitudes.
1: To what extent has racism, misogyny, and transphobia in the LGBT community affected your own behavior? And have you ever had to consciously think about your actions and take a step back to correct them?
2: I feel like most of my shame around bisexuality came from queer community. So when I first came out It was very much about, I like boys and girls, or I want everyone to like me. But the more that I started meeting other gay people in Edmonton, the more I was told, you're confused, you're in the closet. And, you know, even having a relationship with a woman, I was seen as a joke. So even though I still tried to maintain my truth by having relationships that were criticized by the community... The criticism of the community wounded me. And the funny thing about it is that as a community, you know, we supposedly fought for the right to love who we want to. And yet, as soon as you love someone who doesn't look the way that gay people think you should be loving, they jump on your back too. And I think I was just so perplexed by this. I'm like, why am I experiencing so much of this within my own community? So yeah, I definitely modified the person I was to please my own communities, where I think for the longest time, I felt like the love of my life was also my greatest secret. It's something I had so much shame around because I felt like, Gay people were constantly going to criticize me. And so when I would meet another gay person, it would take me months or weeks to like tell them I was in a relationship with another woman because I didn't want to lose their friendship and I didn't want to lose their respect. But you know what's really funny now is like I'm dating a white man and it's the same thing all over again, but like from a racialized lens. So like now brown people feel like I hate myself and like I've given up on my community and like I don't care enough about my racial politics, which is also really painful, right? Like it's also really painful now coming from like brown people to feel like like I'm not brown enough for them or I, I'm not a worthy role model because I'm a dating white person. But like the difference is now I'm in my 30s, I'm grown. And so my perspective is a little bit different. The one thing that I've really had to learn in life is that you can try to change who you are to make people happy, whether that's the oppressor or whether that's people in your community. But if it's at a cost to your own happiness, that's its own kind of purgatory. And at this point in my life, No, thank you. I would rather brown people be disappointed in me for not being the kind of brown role model they want by dating a white man, but be in love and be happy in my relationship while also consciously engaging in like the problematics of what it means to date white men than not dating white men just so that group of radical brown people like me on Instagram.
1: What steps have you taken to give your voice more power within the LGBT community?
2: I mean, I think one of the things for me to boost my voice, part of it's like really been about confidence building. I think what's really given me the confidence to be the kind of queer and trans person that I am as opposed to trying to be the kind of queer and trans and brown person that I think other people want me to be or that I'm being told I should be is by surrounding myself with older queers. Older queers just have a very different perspective. They have seen these conversations happen multiple times. I'm very fortunate to have friends who were, like, around in Toronto during the AIDS movement who've literally seen generations of gay people die, be wiped out. And so their perspective around identity and identity policing is very, very different. And there's also not the same sort of social justice urgency or social justice posturing that I think happens so often like in younger groups. And again, that's not to say that the politics aren't valid, but I often find that with politics do come a bit of this weird posturing as a way to prove that you're somehow more superior that your politics are better than someone else's like there's none of that that happens with my older queer friends and so being around them hearing how they have navigated their identities their gender their sexualities and how their genders and sexualities have changed over the course of a lifetime have changed back and forth and ebbed and flowed for me they're my role models because they just show me that there's other ways to be queer outside of the circles that I've been in. So in terms of boosting my voice, I think by being around them and being exposed to other kinds of queerness outside of my immediate age group and younger, it's allowed me to project the narrative and the story that I want to tell and that feels true to me.
1: How has your culture influenced your gender or sexual identity? And conversely, have your gender and sexual identity ever caused you to reconsider your Indo-Canadian identity?
2: I grew up in an immigrant house with a sort of non-denominational Hindu practice. And in the absence of queer role models in Edmonton in the 80s and 90s, a lot of male Hindu gods ended up being some of my first role models because of the ways that Hindu masculinity and Indian masculinity is very different than North American masculinity. A boy being a flute player surrounded by women And likes to wear jewelry and flowers, in his hair isn't seen as queer, but is seen as God. So for me, it was like, oh, I understand what's happening here. This gender that's happening in my religious context, this is me. I see this. I understand this. And even in terms of communicating transness to my parents, the way I came out to them... We don't use words like transgender that wouldn't really make sense to them. The way I talked about it to my mom was like, I'm in a new chapter in my life where I want to honor my feminine spirit. I want to honor my inner goddess. And I feel like I was trying to speak to her in a parameter that she understood. And by like sort of conjuring goddess lingo, religious lingo, I feel like she kind of gets it. So I think in a lot of ways, I'm very, very fortunate. I mean, I'm always hesitant now to talk about Hinduism because of my own learning of the ways that fundamentalist Hindu national politics have been Islamophobic and harmful in ways that I you know, truthfully wasn't aware of. But simultaneously, I do feel really fortunate because the atmosphere in which I grew up with, with a non-denominational Hindu practice, really allowed my gender to be seen and be nourished in a way that it wasn't elsewhere. And truthfully, I don't know that I would have survived without it. For me, I think that, if anything, my art is really about trying to show a multiplicity of identities can coexist with each other. You know, when my first book, God Loves Hair, came out, there was a bookstore, a gay bookstore in, in Vancouver, that didn't want to stalk it because the word God was in the book. And, you know, I think the sort of dominant narrative, the white narrative in queer communities is that you can't have faith and you can't be queer simultaneously, or you can't be connected to your family and be queer simultaneously. You can't have your culture and be connected to queerness. That like queerness is somehow entirely at odds with being Brown, being religious, being an immigrant, because somehow all of these things are backwards and oppressive and I really want to complicate that because that hasn't really been my narrative. And also, I think a lot of that is just flat out racist. I understand that some people, respectively, people have been persecuted by interpretations of religious texts. So I'm not trying to take away from someone else's experience. But for me, it's been more about finding ways to integrate my brownness with my queerness and demonstrate an integration of the two as opposed to a disconnect. I think that language-wise, like I said... I tend not to, like, frame my background connected to India anymore because of Hindu-Indian nationalist politics. So I've leaned really hard into the word brown. Brown's probably what I would use more than South Asian because, again, South Asian is, like, geographically based, and also my understanding of the history of the word is that it was created by the Canadian government as a classification, and so it feels weird to just sort of take on a word that we didn't create. But the choice to push into brown it is less about being at odds or in conflict with my sexuality and gender, and more with being in conflict with what I'm learning about India as a country.
1: So recently, the Indian Supreme Court removed Section 377 from the Indian Constitution, (laughs) and there were subsequent reactions from Western and Eastern media on whether this reflects progress in Indian society. Some say that this is progress for contemporary conservative Indian society, whereas others say that India has always been aware of LGBTQ issues through scriptures like the Kama Sutra and like citing other examples as well. So considering this, what differences have you encountered between Eastern and Western narratives of LGBT experiences?
2: I mean, I think in Canada, we see ourselves as like very accepting, very open minded, which it's not that we're not, but acceptance is also complicated, and who acceptance is for. Can a white gay man growing up in Toronto have the support and acceptance of his friends and family? Yeah, probably. And by acceptance, can you know he bring his partner home for Thanksgiving? Can there be pride flags around the house? I've seen this kind of white acceptance. But for me, I have had to like reimagine what acceptance looks like as a brown person, whether it is talking about transness through a lens of religion to my parents. And again, my parents are still not using my pronouns, but like I had my makeup done in the kitchen this morning and it wasn't a thing at all to my parents. You know, it's really complicated. And at the end of the day, I would still choose to have the complexity of the relationship I have with my parents over a kind of white acceptance because in my case, I feel like my parents have really grown with me. And the work that they're doing is really about trying to challenge their own beliefs and attitudes as opposed to trying to frame themselves as good parents. I also feel very defensive about the ways that we tend to, here in the West, frame the lack of acceptance and homophobia in other parts of the world. Because, again, I think that a lot of that is racist. I haven't been to a lot of these countries so I can't speak to those experiences but in my brief 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 interaction with queer communities in India it was really fascinating to discover that so much of acceptance that exists is often gender and class related. It's like I think like people in the western media tend to look at gestures like 377 as like indication of progress. And that 377 has been around for so long is evidence of a lack of progress. But, I mean, as you said yourself, queerness has been so embedded in so many of Indian traditions and customs already. And, again, in my brief, brief conversation with Indian activists, so many of them talk about how the first time around when 377 was legal, how many things were lost in the conversation and how queer kids in universities and high schools and junior high were still not feeling safe. And I was like, hmm, that sounds a lot like gay marriage here in Canada, right? So for me, I think that as always, I'm really invested in a more nuanced conversation. And anytime one side is framed as bad and one side is framed as good, especially when the good side tends to be white, (laughs) you know, I tend to get pretty critical about that. But Anyways.
1: You have a new project coming out soon, Death Threat. Would you be able to give us a few details about it?
2: So I started receiving a bunch of very vivid hate mail from a stranger who even included their address. So, you know, when I started getting these messages, I just started thinking a lot about the way that hate is disseminated online and how a lot of us in our jobs are also expected to be online, but there's not a lot of protections in place. So we're forced to be accessible. We're forced to be potentially saying political things, but... It also means that people can access us and feel entitled to us without us being protected in any way. I was also really haunted because he used, like, Sanskrit lettering in the messages and also referred to my mom a couple times. The conjuring of family and religion and culture in the messages made them even more haunting. They were also very poetically written. You know, he talked about—I'm paraphrasing, but something like, "'Today I went into the woods and I chanted your name hoping you would die.'" Like, it was very visual, and so, like, of course, my art brain started running, and I had been reading comic books for the past couple of years, just really trying to understand the genre, because one of my friends is a, an illustrator and a comic artist, and it's a genre I don't know a lot about, but one of the things I've fallen in love with about comics is the ways that there's so much room for, like, dark humor and for things to get just like very wacky, and so I think it was, like, simultaneously getting these messages, it's sinking in imagining what this person was saying in the letters, like literally picturing it, that I was like, oh, comic book. This is a comic book. So Death Threat is a comic book that's coming out next year. (laughs) It'll feature illustrations of all the Death Threats, but then also like their responses. I want it to be a very meta-narrative I remember calling my parents to talk to them about it. I called them because this person kept referring to my mom. So I was just kind of nervous, like, because you don't know who these people are, right? So I'm like, have they contacted my parents? And my dad got on speakerphone and he's like, just so you know, it's probably one of your friends. And I was like, thanks, dad. That's what you want (laughs) to hear. So I'm like imagining a scene in the comic book where like I'm having this conversation with my dad or my character is. And then like I go on Facebook and I try and like figure out who didn't like the last photo of mine on Instagram. And it's like, that's the person, you know?
1: Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. Thank you.
0: Welcome back to Adventures in Your Own Backyard on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Michelle Dang. And my
1: name is Harmon Kang. Sadly, it is the end of our show, but we'll be back in two weeks. Adventures in Your Own Backyard is a spoken word project of CJSR-FM and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. We produced this week's episode on the CJSR studios in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to the diverse Indigenous peoples of this land, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Ojibwe, Soto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many others whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant community. We are always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch by going to the CGSR
0: website, cgsr.com. To end off this first episode, we'd like to play a little song for you. For all my Patrick Watson fans out there, you may have already realized that, yes, the title of our show is taken from, dare I say, one of the greatest albums of all time. For those of you who haven't heard of them, Patrick Watson is a Juno-nominated Polaris Music prize-winning Canadian band based in Montreal and also one of my personal heroes. Their fourth album, Adventures in Your Own Backyard, was released in 2012, and today, to finish off, we'd like to play the title track, Adventures in Your Own Backyard. Twelve steps